what I believe was the title of two separate essays by the philosopher Bertrand Russell and the novelist E.M. Forster in the early 20th century. These two humanist activists set out their approach to life, their fundamental worldview, in a way that was accessible to all. I'm Andrew Copson, Chief Exec of Humanists UK, and in this podcast I'm talking to humanists today about what they believe, to understand more about the values, convictions and opinions they live by. Christina Patterson is a writer and broadcaster. She's written for a wealth of newspapers, including The Independent, The Observer, The Sunday Times and The Daily Mail, writing on politics, society, culture, books and the arts. Her book, The Art of Not Falling Apart, was critically acclaimed, picked as a book of the year by the New Statesman and the Mail on Sunday, and is a stimulating read. She's a regular commentator on radio and TV news programmes and a regular guest on the Sky News Press Preview. Most importantly, Christina is a patron of Humanists UK. Christina, thank you for joining us. My pleasure. You've had a varied career, and I'm sure we'll talk about uh, some of your, the different aspects of your work, but I thought we would start with a book that you wrote recently, The Art of Not Falling Apart, which we, was very lucky. we were very lucky to have you talk about at the Humanist UK convention a couple of years ago. I think it was only a couple of years. It seems it's like last, a very long time now. It was last, it was last year, actually. Last, it was I only know, last it feels year. feels like 10 years, but it was <laughs> last year, yes. Yeah, um, it does feel like a long time. That's The COVID year has done that mm. to us. Um, so last year. Um, and I thought that we might uh, talk a little bit about that, um, perhaps specifically about the values behind it. I mean, the book arises out of losses and disappointments in your own life, and you talk to then others about their losses and disappointments. Um, but why? Why were you interested in exploring that theme? Well, I have been interested all my life, really, in how we cope when life goes wrong, largely because quite a lot of things went wrong for me. I mean, I think one of the interesting things is that, of course, life goes wrong at certain points for everyone. But one of the big questions is how old you are when that happens. And I think some people can be quite cushioned for quite a long time. And I remember in my mid-20s when I had a a pain condition that was quite immobilizing, which turned out to be an autoimmune disease, Go meeting people. And it was clear that nothing at all had gone wrong in their lives. And I remember thinking, how is this possible? But of course, people do. And by the time you reach middle age, then something will have gone wrong for you. You may well have, you probably lost, uh, you might have lost a parent, you will almost certainly have lost a grandparent, you will have lost somebody you love, you will probably have had some kind of illness at some point. But if you are in a Western culture and you're middle class and you're employed and you're healthy, you can go quite a long time without having had too much go wrong in your life. But in my family, my sister had what turned out to be schizophrenia, though we didn't know that for quite a while. And she had a breakdown when she was 14 and I was nine. And that had a big impact on us all really and from that point I don't think I ever thought life is just going to be fine it wasn't fine I mean my parents were magnificent my sister was in many ways a wonderful person she died when she was 41 but um, I think I 
I became slightly obsessed by suffering actually I I you know she got ill and then um in my early 20s I developed really really bad acne I mean really severe acne so that I felt uh, you know hideous and then I developed this pain condition and you know various things went wrong yeah. and and so I I suppose you know I've just always been fascinated stroke obsessed with um how we cope with pain actually do you think I mean are, are you saying I'm not sure if you are saying this are, are you saying that early experience of pain and suffering um changes the way you experience it later on in your life are you saying it builds resilience or are you saying not I, that I else? don't think it automatically builds resilience actually because for example if you look at some of the research on resilience uh, children who come from what would be called you know chaotic backgrounds with not much in the way of parenting or uh, not much money at home or badly fed or whatever actually tend not to do very well in future life so it's certainly not a given that early suffering builds resilience but I think I th- and it and it's a complicated mix there is no formula to it but I certainly think that suffering when you're relatively young can build empathy and compassion and uh practice at getting through tough times will build resilience for the future I think generally speaking. In your book I mean The Art of Not Falling Apart is basically about how we cope when life goes wrong mm. um, and of course one of the themes of, of that question is that we meet it with uh, resilience and um, what else do we meet it with what do you think are other tools for dealing with life's bad events? I think probably the most important or one of the most important is relationships. I think if you feel alone in the world, that when your world collapses and you feel alone, then it is almost unbearable and sometimes literally unbearable. But if you have built relationships with people, whether they be family or friends, and if there is love in your life and the ability to be heard and to be able to cry on somebody's shoulder or laugh. I think that makes a huge difference. I I think friends are incredibly important and also humour. I mean, a lot of the people I interviewed for the book were friends and people I'm very, very fond of who have been through tough times. But, you know, they're not my friends because they are courageous and resilient. They're my friends because they're very good fun and they make me laugh. And I think that's incredibly important. I think if you lose your sense of humour, then that is tough. And I think one of the things we've seen in these past difficult months is it's really important to carry on laughing. I mean, life life is very difficult for many, many people at the moment, but you you still have to find things to laugh about, otherwise you're sunk. So it sounds like you think that relationships with others, you know, they're valuable in themselves, but they also take us outside of ourselves. Absolutely right. Yeah. And again, the resilience research shows that if you have a good network of relationships, you're much more likely to be able to cope when when things go wrong. But um, but yes, absolutely. I, I think that's right. Yeah. Feeling better is, is obviously something for which there isn't a, um, a, a recipe. Um, as such, it's not something you can just switch on. I mean, I don't think you could read any book, um, whether it's your book or another book, and think, right, now I know you know, what to do no. um, in order to feel better. I just switch this switch and make these three connections and then the circuit will you know, light up. Mm. Um, 
it, it seems to me, actually, I think this is, I got this impression from your talk at, at convention and from your book as well, that you, you do think that it isn't just something you can switch on, but it is something that emerges eventually and that the choices we make can help it emerge or hinder it emerge. Is that is that about right? That's exactly right. Exactly right. Unfortunately, you can't just switch it on. I mean, there, there is talk about, you know, fake it till you make it. And I think there is some truth in that. I think when I was younger, I, I was very, very hard on my sleeve. Actually, I'm still pretty hard on my sleeve. <laughs> I mean, I remember when I lost my job, you know, people said, oh, you've got to go around and, and uh, you know, kind of do all this networking. And I remember going to a networking event and, you know, telling everybody I'd just been fired and was feeling absolutely awful, which is the opposite <laughs> of what you're meant to do. But, um, but that that's just, we, we also have to be who we are, don't we? And um, I, I think that's quite important. I think if you try to put on a huge act eventually something will crack but you can't brainwash yourself into feeling something you don't feel if you feel miserable you feel miserable but this is where it gets complicated I do also think that one of the things we do learn as we gain a bit more wisdom and accumulate a bit more experience and uh, have survive a few more knocks is that there is a sense in which happiness is a choice. I mean, I think mentally, you can choose to focus on the stuff that makes you miserable. And if you are in terrible, terrible pain, whether that's physical or emotional pain, it is hard to get your mind out of that groove. But there are always things that can help maybe break a circuit in a way. And I think, for example, Fresh air and exercise is a very, very simple thing that we can all do. I've always thought that I hate exercise. In my head, I still think I hate exercise. But actually, when I go for a run, I, I secretly quite enjoy it. And, and I feel much better afterwards. And I know that when I don't go for a run, I feel much worse. So I think there are always small things, whether it's picking up the phone to a friend or watching a funny movie or reading a poem we love that can make you feel different so I do think there's an element of choice what do you think it is that that holds us back then I mean that the if the choice is there to be made if if, if you if you you do believe that um that you know the sunshine is out there if we if we want to seek it and but we mm. have to choose to seek it why do you think that um people choose not to that's a very difficult question to answer. Yes. I'm sure you know. <laughs> I, I do think a lot of it actually comes down to habit. I think we build all kinds of habits that we're not really aware of in our thinking and just in, in our everyday lives. I mean, for example, one habit I was not aware of was I have been single for most of my adult life. And and absolutely nothing wrong with being single. I, in, you know, I had in lots of ways a lovely, lovely time being single. But some of the time I felt a bit resentful about that. And I would be envious of friends who were in relationships or friends with families. And I realized that being single is also a habit. I mean, you know, I think most of us can be in a relationship if we really want to be. And I don't, I don't mean that in a magical thinking kind of, you know, you create your own reality kind of way. I just mean that that 
it's not climbing Everest. I always thought that having a relationship was like climbing Everest. And right. it isn't. It's about being with someone and getting on well with them and being nice to them and them being nice to you. And and you could just choose to do that. You, you could, could just choose, choose to, to invest that. in that and do you it. You could choose yeah. to do that. But if you think it's like climbing Everest, which I did, then it's quite difficult to choose to do that because I definitely couldn't climb Everest and I'm not going to try. So I do think that I think we can get into habits of thinking very easily. And, you know, I've, I'm someone who can easily and have been very obsessed by work. I've been in cycles of kind of working most of the time. I think obsessively about politics. I think obsessively about all kinds of things. Slightly less, not at the moment, because we're in the middle of the American election. I literally can't think of anything else. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's justified right now to be yeah, a little bit. Exactly. No Whether it's work. healthy, that's a different question, but it's, it's, it's <laughs> rational. Exactly. <laughs> no work for days. But generally speaking, again, we have a choice about what we put our mental energy into. So, I, yeah, I mean, I think we can snap out of certain things. And habit is something... We don't even think we 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 have we don't even think we have habits about what we eat and what we do and when we brush our teeth and when we go to bed and who we speak to. I think almost mm. everything in our life is a habit, actually. So we can adopt good habits. We can improve that. We can theoretically. We can do that. <laughs> yes. Yeah, theoretically, that's right. Exactly. Exactly. I mean, we all we all have our habits, and some of those shift. And I'm constantly thinking, oh, I wish I could get up earlier and go for a run first thing in the morning and drink this. And I think if I looked at diaries, I've kept a sporadic diary for most of my adult life, and I think nearly everyone would say must lose half a stone, must drink less. Uh, for many many years, it was must get a boyfriend. Um, you know, some of those things shift a little bit, but, sure. but so much of it is about what we want, really, and how much we want it. Now that you've realised that it is, uh, it was a habit at least that was keeping you from it. Are you still? Are you still single by choice? Is that something that you've continued I'm, to, I'm to be single. in yourself? No, I'm not. Oh, you're not. I'm not. No, I've I've been with someone for um, five and a half years, which is an absolute record. Oh, I see, and um, and it's very nice. It's very nice, and I'm very happy with him and. We have a nice time and I really hope we don't, I really, really hope we don't split up. But I also know that if we did split up, it wouldn't be the end of the world because actually nothing is the end of the world except the end of the world. Is that something that writing the book on not falling apart and, and the people that you talk to sort of brought home to you that um, how what seems like a catastrophe isn't? I think it's, I think we can always surprise ourselves by what we survive and plenty of things feel like a catastrophe and are pretty catastrophic. I've lost every single member of my family. Um, my brother died last summer and I'd already lost my sister and my both my parents and that was absolutely devastating and I mourn him every night and I'm in fact interring his ashes next week having delayed it through because of the pandemic. So um, I can't claim that that wasn't a catastrophe. It was a catastrophe, but I'm alive and I'm here and I still love life. And I suppose it comes down ultimately to how much you love life. I think for me, having lost every member of my family, I value life all the more. I've also had cancer twice, which has made me value life a great deal. So I literally think that being alive in itself is an incredible, precious gift. And I want to live for as long as I can. 
And is that what those losses gave you? Was that perspective or was it something else? Or was it mainly that perspective, that change in perspective or that realisation? Was that what the loss gave you? It's so hard to answer that. I, I don't know. I think loss gives you all kinds of things. I'm actually just finishing a book partly about this at the moment. And and the book will, I suppose, in a way, address that. And that will be, you know, 300 odd pages. So I don't so I should I, wait for my answer. I, I, should, I should read I the book. <laughs> I don't think I can sum it up in a sentence. But I think loss gives you all kinds of things. And as I said earlier, I think a sense of um, empathy and compassion is part of what it brings you because you can't help but feel for other people who who also experience loss which ultimately is all of us but I think I think um it should or ought to give you a greater love of life it certainly has in my case it's that's the sort of thing that sounds um difficult doesn't it I think for people to understand until they've experienced that I mean I my my brother uh died you know just a couple of years ago very, very young as well mm. and I you know it's I think when people first hear that from someone that sentiment that you've just expressed they can sometimes think gosh you know how <laughs> how almost inhumane you know to say that someone else's death has given you zest um mm. for living and it, it, that's not quite how it is is it just it's it more it it, it puts things into perspective you make choices yeah. I mean, what i found myself doing was making more active choices about the shaping of my own life and the future of it and those i cared about as a result of what had happened absolutely right absolutely right and i think the zest is is uh, exactly the right word i think it intensifies everything yes. and i remember when i had cancer the last time which was 10 years ago and i had a a big operation and was uh, it took me a long time to recover and it was a terrifying time obviously I, I didn't want to die I didn't know if the operation was going to work I didn't know what the results would be and I was on my own it was very 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 tough but you know weirdly when I look back on the time I have a sense the word nostalgia would not be right but a sense of an incredible intensity to the experience and intensity to the love and care of my friends who helped me through that time that that I I can't quite recapture. And I do think I, I mean I was before before this pandemic hit, I was brokenhearted and I thought I couldn't believe that I'd lost every member of my family. I'm the last one left and I don't have children and neither of my siblings have children. So I'm the last in the line. And that in itself is a difficult thing to face actually. Why is that? Sorry, I didn't want yeah, to interrupt, well, but why is um, that difficult? Well, I think we are, it's a kind of animal thing, isn't it? We are animals who are bred on the instinct. We're hardwired, I suppose, to want to um, continue our genetic line. And, and be uh, in a family. And be in a family. And mm. I think even you've got, on the one hand, the kind of, I suppose, genetic predisposition and the kind of you know primitive animal the primal stuff and then you've got the cultural conditioning of a society that is all about hard working families and it's almost as if if you are single or childless you know politicians don't even want your vote you're worth so little yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. it's uh, it's you just don't really feature so so there is certainly that but um on the kind of prioritizing what you want in life i had already decided after losing my brother which was 
kind of the worst. I sort of felt like, I mean, it was the worst thing. I've had a lot of bad things happen in my life, but that really felt like the absolute worst. I didn't know how I would survive that or get through it. But if it taught me nothing else, it was that every moment is precious and we just don't know how long we've got. And there is no point in messing around. If you want to do something, do it. Now, I know that we're obviously constrained in the current circumstances, but it was very strange for me to go through that sense. And then literally everybody in the world now is thinking about death every day because we're all in yes. the game of Russian roulette. And we're all trying to make plans at a time when we can't make any plans, but we're also trying to work out what really matters to us. And I think that in itself, I'm not going to say this pandemic is full of silver linings. Um, I don't think it is. I think it's terrible. I think it's wiping out jobs. It's wiping out livelihoods. Yes, and of course, it's wiping yeah. out lives. Yeah. But I do think that life is precious and short. And in the West in particular, we can get a bit complacent about that because we have had the luxury of healthcare uh, that enables us to live much longer than many people in the world do. And I think uh, there is certainly something to be said for being reminded of how short and precious life is. You're a great interviewer as well as a great writer. Thank you. I think so. Um, I remember reading at the, at the time your, gosh, when would it have been? Now? More than 10 years ago, isn't it? The Gordon Brown. Oh, yeah. uh, into, I can't believe that's not. That was 10 years ago. Ten years ago, ago yeah. yes. Unbelievable almost. I wondered if you had ever thought about what the, the values or beliefs that, that you have that make you good at that. I mean, it struck me that curiosity might be one. You're very Definitely. curious about what people Definitely. are thinking, what they're doing and so on. Is that Absolutely. right? Absolutely. Curiosity. I think empathy. I think I think you only you can only do good interviews if you are able to put yourself in someone else's shoes and um and also able to build enough of a rapport for someone to open up to you. Um, I haven't interviewed very many politicians, but I've been told by the politicians that the interviews I've done have been different to the ones that they're used to doing. Because very often people take a kind of Westminster villagery, villagey approach, which is kind of let me trick them about this matter of policy or whatever. And I'm not at all interested in that. I'm interested in who the person is. And that it's interesting you mentioned the Gordon Brown interview, because I think that was, for me, the most interesting interview I've ever done in my life. Because he's such a fascinating man. <laughs> he's a really complicated person. But I have huge admiration for him, actually. I, I mean, he was flawed as a, he wasn't a great prime minister, though, frankly, he seems like, you know, Mandela compared to. <laughs> it's all a matter of perspective again, isn't it? <laughs> the thing that um, really moved me about him was I absolutely believed and saw, because I spent a day with him in his constituency, I saw how much. His constituents loved him. We went to a factory. We went to um, a, a sort of citizens' advice bureau. We went to all kinds of different places, and I saw how people related to him and how kind he was, and how much they respected him. But I also saw that this was a man who was absolutely powered by his desire for social justice and decency and compassion and all the things that motivate me basically those are the things that drive me those were the values I was brought up with both my parents were public servants my mother was a teacher my father was a civil servant in fact after I interviewed Gordon Brown my darling now late brother phoned me and said did he remind you of dad and uh, and I thought oh well. my god that's exactly right my father was Scottish he was not actually the son of a manse, but he was absolutely spiritually the son of a manse. He went to church every Sunday, wouldn't have dreamt of talking about his faith. He was a very 
private man with a kind of brooding, sometimes embarrassing sense of sort of honor and integrity. He wouldn't stop on a double yellow line. When we came back, from, my mother was Swedish. When we came back from Sweden, he would declare goods he'd bought at Ikea, which, you know, you didn't have to do. No one else ever did. And we'd have these great cues behind us. It was very embarrassing. Um, he was, you know, that absolute kind of, you know, slightly awkward, um, not charming. He was witty in the way that Gord Brown could be as well. But that sense of great honour, integrity, justice, and fighting for the underdog, that's what I grew up with. That's what I believe in. And that's what Gordon Brown had. And they're still your political values. So your political values come from your own youth, is that Absolutely right? right. Yeah, they, they are the things that, that um, I suppose drive me in a way, I wouldn't be fair to say more than anything, but those are, for me, the most important things. I think the most important thing in life is to be a decent human. It's literally the most important thing to be kind. That's how I was brought up and that's what I believe. And that's why I've personally been desperately upset about what has happened in politics in the last four and a half, five years. And that's why I am going to crack open a bottle of something enormous tonight. Now yes, let's- well, let's say, I mean, as we're recording, let's just be clear that um, there's there's a few states left to go, but it looks like Joe Biden has won. But it, that, that would be an unfortunate remark, Christina, if it turns out to have gone the other way. <laughs> we're all right. We're all right, Andrew. I have single-handedly been willing Biden into the White House for the last few days. I have very, very uh, um, sort of selflessly given up all possibility of doing any work or earning any money for all week in order to get him into the White House. It's all thanks to you. That's and brilliant. It's all thanks to me and it's happening now. So I he will think... he will be propelled, it seems to me, through the doors of the White House by the kinetic energy of everyone refreshing their phones. All that rolling has certainly yes. off, yes. Um, you studied English literature yes. uh, when you were um, a full-time student. Um, I suppose you're maybe a student of English literature still, but you know what I mean. Yeah. Um, and you wrote once in a column that that study of English literature uh, was one yeah. of the things that made you realise the Bible wasn't the word of God. I don't really particularly want to talk about Bible, the mm. Bible or religion. That's not what we talk about on this on, on this podcast. But I thought we might talk a little bit about English uh, literature, mm. the values value of literature. Mm. I know that um, the arts in general, but literature as well, is not something that you know, humanists are well off for scientists and philosophers and all the rest of it. But I sometimes think that our our novelists and our writers and our artists get neglected, um, especially at a time like this, I think, uh, in the, the the COVID restrictions that we've had and being mm-hmm. confined to our homes. Um, literature is more and more important to people. It's still presumably fiction plays an important part. Yes, in it does. I, I mean, I, I review for the Sunday Times and these days I, I review both fiction and nonfiction, but these days I mostly review nonfiction Um so I don't that often get the opportunity to read for pure pleasure. But I, I absolutely, I think um, there's a novelist in, well, there are millions of novelists I love, but there is nothing, I think art is in a way the most sublime expression of the human spirit. Now, I'm sure a scientist or a mathematician would say something similar, but I am not a scientist or a mathematician, so I can't comment on the incredible sense of joy or elegance of a mathematical equation or even of um, the theory of relativity. But I do know about poetry and literature and, to a lesser extent, the visual arts and music. And, for example, when I listen to Bach or when I read 
Shakespeare or, you know, or a great contemporary novelist like the American novelist Elizabeth Strout, who I think is absolutely wonderful. I think you've, you sense that this is human beings at their best. And I think that human beings can, are capable of such greatness. And that's why it's so heartbreaking to see our politics reduced to these, this slogan, these, you know, popularizing, popularizing slogans that oversimplify because everything in life is complex. And what I think art does at its best beautifully or even sublimely is capture the complexity of life, capture the doubt, the uncertainty, what we humans can't quite articulate but are constantly aspiring to articulate. So I think of Keats and um, his negative capability, which is uh, a phrase he used in a, in a, a letter to um, a friend, which is being capable of when someone is cap- in a state of uncertainty and doubt. Um, and I think that's what we need more of in a way. And of course, populism is all about certainty and simple, i.e. wrong, solutions to complex issues. So yes, the, the arts are incredibly important to me, yeah. I find it very interesting that you've that you've um, emphasised that that idea of negative capability, you know, of of the arts to um, to lead us into um, messiness and mm. you know uh, confusion. Because I'd be interested in how you fit that together with what you said earlier about thinking about our own lives, because it seemed there that you were seeking for clarity and resolution. You're absolutely right to <laughs> highlight the tension, and I think life—I think life is all about that tension, about right. how we navigate the fact that we live in an uncertain universe where we don't know well, the most fundamental question, we do, which is why we're here and where do we come from? Well, the where do we come from thing, we we can make some pretty good guesses about, assuming we're not Bible bashing fundamentalists, but the why are we here? in a kind of metaphysical sense, we can only make some stabs at and we will literally not get an answer in our lifetime. And since those who, us who, I, I, who I'm not sure I would particularly use, I, I, I am a humanist, I don't go around using labels particularly, but those of us who mm. are sort of broadly in the humanist camp would presumably um, agree that it's very unlikely there's anything after that. That means that we never get the answers, <laughs> neither before <laughs> nor after or at any point. Um, so you are right that it is about that tension, but by the clarity, I wasn't talking about, um, clarity about, you know, we sort of, I don't think there are, I I mean, I think there are very few clear answers about anything in life, even policy in in political terms, you're only trying to, to kind of come up with better solutions rather than worse ones. And for example, management of a pandemic, there are no good answers here. There are no good policies here. There is simply... Um, you know, trying trying to do your best and ideally with a degree of competence, which alas is not what we're seeing. But I think that the clarity I was talking about earlier was about making choices for yourself, trying to, within all the uncertainties around, trying to clarify what's important for you. And that's where the values come in, I think. So I think we can know 
we can't know what will happen in our lives. We can't know what choices will be available to us. For example, in terms of earning a living, even without the pandemic, that was likely to become more complicated in the years to come because of AI and the rise of the robot and the fact that so many um, forms of work are becoming if not obsolete, then are fading. If you look at retail, you know, I hope the high street won't go, but it's not looking good for it, or people will have to become more creative about what happens to the high street. So we're constantly reinventing the world of work. We had the Industrial Revolution, now we're looking at fourth industrial revolution or whatever, and all hugely accelerated, I think, by this pandemic. But I think there is there's a kind of clarity you can have in terms of your values, and I suppose that's what I meant. Human relationships, authenticity, breaking habits, perspective, thinking about death and then living. Christina Patterson, thank you for telling us what you believe. Thank you very much for having me on the podcast. It's been a great, great pleasure to talk to you, Andrew. That was Christina Patterson telling us about her life and her outlook on the world as a humanist for the What I Believe podcast. What I Believe is a weekly podcast from Humanist UK, and this was the fifth episode of the second season. We'll be releasing new episodes every Thursday. If you'd like to support the podcast or find out more about the humanist approach to things, Humanist UK or the work that we do, you can find out more at the Humanist UK website, humanists.uk. And please consider joining as a member or supporter if you like what you see. You can also purchase the Sunday Times bestseller, The Little Book of Humanism, available now at all good retailers.